You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Week two, the book of Daniel. We enter chapter one. Last week we did an overview, and this week we look uh, at, at the, the story of Daniel as it begins. You know, growing up, a favorite cartoon of mine was a cartoon called The Animaniacs. I don't know if anybody in here watched The Animaniacs. It was a, a variety show uh, of a cartoon that had different sketches and different characters, and two of the most popular. Uh, characters in the popular, well, popular sketch was about uh, two lab mice named Pinky and Brain. Uh, <laughs> thank you, yeah. Uh, they were genetically mutated mice, one named Pinky who was good-natured but feeble-minded, the other a mouse named Brain who was a narcissistic genius who schemed of world domination. Every episode was led by an interaction between Pinky and Brain in the cage they had at Acme Lab where Pinky would ask the question. And that question was, as you know, what are we going to do tonight, Brain? And Brain would respond, the same thing we do every night, try to take over the world. And every episode was a new plan Brain had for world domination, and every single one of them failed. Now, I don't know if you have ever gave in to your inner Brain, Maybe you have considered how you might conquer the world or have it in your dominion or have the world at your beck and call to do as you please. My question to you in in your thinking is, is what would the method of your uh, domination be? Would, Would you have dominated the world through coercive power? Would it have been or is it through acquiring wealth and property and influence? Is it through political acumen. Maybe you build a time-traveling vehicle to go back in time. Might the goal of world domination come through the very same way that one might win the board game Risk, where the first one to acquire the continent of Australia has a very distinct advantage in taking over the world. Of course, most of us in here are more like Pinky than we are like Brain, minus, of course, the feeble-minded, genetically altered mice bit, Uh, good nature and innocent. Our brains aren't versed in the quest for world domination. This morning, as we look at Daniel 1, we are enlightened to the reality that the plot towards world domination is more real and alive than we might ever imagine. Uh, We will see the power and the tools that one uses to gain power and enlarge that power, and we will be surprised by who really wins the battle of world domination. And we will be greatly surprised by how that is done. Daniel reminds us of who really is in charge and what one's character looks like when you trust in the one who is in charge. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today and we thank you for the plan that you've laid out since the beginning of time, that we are here in this moment, that you foreknew this, Lord, that we would be together today. And Jesus, We praise you for doing the work of that plan to bring salvation to your people. And through you, Christ, we confess our sins today, the ways that we have not honored you as a people this week, this month, this year. 
And Spirit, we pray to you that you would make these words come alive, that you would use the word to bring gladness and conviction into our hearts. And so we pray to you, one God in three persons today, and we ask you to do our work, your work in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Let's look at Daniel chapter one, verse one. We'll have it on the screen, follow along if you have your Bibles. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenza, his chief unit, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And so last week we learned uh, about a king named Josiah, who had great influence over Daniel. Josiah had come to discover that the word of God was hidden in the temple, and it had been hidden for a very long time. And Josiah resolves himself to follow the text, to follow the law, and he leads great reform in the kingdom of Judah, and revival breaks out all over the land. But in 609 BC, at 39 years old, Josiah was killed at the battle of Megiddon by an Egyptian pharaoh named Necho. Now, Josiah's body was returned to Jerusalem. He was buried there. And his son, Jehoahaz, was placed on the throne. And that, the Bible records that in 2 Kings chapter 23. It's not a normal succession. Jehoahaz is not the oldest son of Josiah. He's actually the youngest son of Josiah, but he's the popular choice in Jerusalem at the time. Now, kings were always to follow the succession plan of the firstborn sons taking over the throne. And so this was in direct disobedience. Jehoahaz was not like his father at all. And this is what is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 32. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. And so he begins to undo all the work that his father had so painstakingly achieved. And just three months into his reign, the pharaoh in Egypt, Necho, captures Jerusalem, and he took Jehoahaz to Egypt, and it is there that he dies. And Necho puts on the throne another one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim. And essentially what Necho does is make Jehoiakim his puppet. Jehoiakim begins to collect taxes from the kingdom of Judah to fund the Egyptians' conquest and wars. Jehoiakim stops doing work on the temple and he begins to build his own elaborate palace, one of great stature for himself. He is a corrupted king, worse than his brother. But in 605 BC, here come the Babylonians. They're at war with the Egyptians. They take Jerusalem and make the kingdom of Judah their own vessel state, their own puppet state. And then after that victory, Nebuchadnezzar begins to pilfer the house of God for relics to take back to Shinar. Now, Shinar is the capital city of the Babylonian Empire. It's also called Babylon. It would be in present-day Iraq today. Uh, the Babylonians, would, upon capturing the kingdoms and the lands, they would take the idols that the people in those lands worshipped, bronze and gold idols of gods that these now-subjugated people worshipped. 
and they would bring them back to their own land and they would put them in their own treasury in the house of their own God. And in that day, that God would have been Marduk. Now, Marduk is not the only Babylonian God. He's one of great reverence or reverence. But it was a mean to, en- to enforce the idea that the Babylonian gods were the supreme gods to say to them that our God actually owns your God because he's in his bank. But on capturing Judah in Jerusalem, I should say, they realized that the Hebrews had no idols, that they, in fact, worshiped the one true God of the universe. Now, unfaithfully to a fault, but they were actually forbidden to worship idols. And so instead of taking idols, they take the vessels, the furnishings in the temple, the candelabra, and the altars in the in the in the, the basin, they melt some of them down and they take some of the other ones into Babylon. Now it's interesting that we hear no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, where was it in this time? Now there are some that believe in that day that there were priests that took the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the Ten Commandments, and they hid it beneath the Temple Mount and they buried it there. And some believe that it's still there today. Uh, In 685 AD, uh, the Muslims conquered the land and they built uh, their shrine called the Dome of the Rock on top of the Temple Mount. Christian archaeologists are are not permitted to investigate those claims that the Ark of the Covenant is there. However, I will say this, there are a wide varying range of ideas of where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so what what are the Babylonians trying to do? What are they trying to do in taking these idols? Well, they want to take the spirit and the strength of the nation. They did this by taking away their idols, by taking away their gods. But they didn't stop there. They wanted to take their hearts and their hope as well. What captures the hearts of people more? And what do people have more hope in than the children that they love? A hope that they will achieve more, know more, do better, be better than we are. The Babylonians, they know this, and they would take from the kingdoms that they conquered the very best of their youth, the most promising of their offspring, the ones who might lead them to glory in the future, and they would subdue them and assimilate them into their culture. Daniel is one who they believed to be the best of the best. Daniel and some of his friends were taken back to Babylon. They were just 17, maybe 18-year-olds old at the time, and they're taken to Babylon, Babylon to begin their indoctrination. And what was their method? What was the method of the Babylonians? Well, we, it's described to us here in verse 4 through 7. They would take these youth from Judah back to Babylon, and here's what it says in verse 4. It says, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans is just another word for the Babylonian empire. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that they ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and the, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now we see three methods here of indoctrinations. The Babylonians sought to change the way that Daniel and his friends thought through education. 
They thought to change the way that Daniel and his friends lived through how they ate. And they wanted to change who they worshipped by changing their names. And so the Babylonians had isolated these young men and began to teach them the Babylonian way of life. Their beliefs on God, on man, on purpose, on honor, on success. Uh, The Babylonians were great lovers of astrology. They would study the stars and the constellations. And certainly they would have passed that on to the youths in this time. And now there is a belief, it's a very solid belief that those who came to visit the Christ child in Bethlehem, the Magi, from the Far East were actually descendants of the followers of Daniel who were taught by him what to look for in the sky to know when the Messiah had come into the world. The Babylonians believed in omens and signs that would be interpreted by them in their wisdom, teachings that would be in direct opposition to what Daniel and his friends would have learned in their young days in Judah. They were taught not to listen to mediums, not to listen to spiritists, not to listen to those who believed they could conjure the dead. But this was the way of the Babylonian. And for three years, these youths were educated on that way. And during their time there, they were tempted to change the way that they lived. Babylon, in Babylon, Daniel and his friends were offered the choice food that the king ate, wine that the king drank. This would have been entirely different than what Daniel had grown up in. There were food regulations to follow. There was the premise that you couldn't eat food after it had been sacrificed to a pagan god. And so Daniel had seen a very different way of handling food. Nebuchadnezzar tries to tempt them with the pleasures of the world, that by filling up their bellies, that they would bow to him. And in that isolation away from their families, away from their support systems, Daniel and his friends are given new names. Now, name changes aren't new. Uh, We see them throughout our scripture. Often they are changed by God himself. And those names often denote new identity. For instance, we remember the great patriarch Abram. Abram had his name changed to Abraham. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant father of many. It was given to Abraham by the covenant that God had made him to him that he would be the father of the nation and his offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky. Simon, one of the disciples of Jesus, was given a name change to Peter. Simon meaning one who hears, Peter meaning the rock, signifying that through Peter, Jesus would build his church. Name changes happen throughout our scripture and they are connected to one's identity. And so when we see the Babylonians try to change these names of Daniel and his friends, we must conclude that they're trying to change their identity. And they're trying to do that by making them forget who they worshiped. We remember last week I said that Daniel meant God is my judge. God is my judge. In Babylon, his name was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning Bel protect the king. Bel is a Babylonian god. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. And that name is changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Aku is a god of the Babylonians. Mishael means who is like the Lord. And that name was changed to Meshach, meaning who is what Aku is. Azariah means the Lord is my helper. And it was changed to Abednego. 
meaning servant of Negeo, the Babylonian god of vegetation. The Babylonians changed the Hebrew team's names in an attempt to make them forget the god they worship. They wanted to change their worship. Now, in our scripture, when you come across the word Babylon, it can literally mean the empire of Babylon. But it also is associated with an evil empire, any evil empire, but mostly the evil empire, not Star Wars, but the kingdom that is ruled by Satan. It is associated with evil. And I will tell you that the spirit of Babylon still exists in this world today. That today, 2,600 years later, that spirit runs rampant. Babylon was the zenith of the world's power for a brief period of time, but it was a small pawn in a greater war between those in the world that love the world and its master and those in the world that love God. It's the war that was laid out for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Today, the world is still bent towards world domination. It's bent on conquering the redeemed people of God. Does it strike you that the same methods that Babylon used to manipulate Daniel and his friends are still used today? That we have a culture that tries to take our spirit and strength by stealing our God through changing his definition of who he is and what he is like and what he said. A world that is still after our children to isolate them and indoctrinate them to change the way that they think, to change the way that they live, to change the one that they worship. It's a world that offers us the pleasures of the world. It gives to us what we want as a means to placate and pacify and indoctrinate us. And I think it's quite interesting that the world itself sees its own folly and deceit. I mean, the creator of TikTok won't allow his children on social media. Steve Jobs, the creator of Apple, famously said that he would not allow his children to have iPads. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't good uses for those things, but I think that we should be alarmed at the way that they isolate us, and that through our screens and our social media feeds, there is a propensity to change our identity, our definitions, and even our names. These aren't conspiracies. This is reality. Reality that has always existed long before the year 2023. The world is not neutral. It is not a choose-your-own-adventure novel. You will not define it. If you let it, it will define you. Because every one of us will worship something. Every one of us will follow someone. Every one of us will be discipled by someone or something. Who will it be? And that is true of us. And that is true of our children's. And that might move us to fear. But I'm telling you, don't be afraid. What do we do? How do we not create bubbles of protection around our families? How do we not lash out in anger and frustration at the, leader and the leaders of the world and the deception and the indoctrination? How do we obey God? to reveal and reflect his love and grace into a broken world? How can we flourish in a world but not be of it? Well, friends, let's look to Daniel. Daniel, starting in verse 8, begins his resolve. 
verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he say that you were in worse condition than the youth who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. Daniel resolved himself not to defile himself. And what does that mean? Well, let's look at that in a moment. What we see is that Daniel would not eat. He wouldn't defile himself. But the king's eunuch, his official, begged him to change his mind. He says that uh, I have got to report to my lord, the king, and if you don't eat, like, look, my head's going to be on the line here. He tries to force Daniel to eat the food, but notice how Daniel responds. He doesn't respond in frustration. He doesn't lash out. He, with gentleness and wisdom, he asks for space for God to show up, a test to show how God's glory and goodness is known. And lo and behold, 10 days after what Daniel had said came true. Now, of course, as you might know, this created a popular wave of diet in our world, the Daniel fast. It was hot for a moment. I found that to be quite interesting uh, that it became a diet fad because in Daniel, you read that it ended up making him fatter than it did skinnier. Um, but somehow it became a diet. And I'll say this. I did the Daniel fast for 30 days. I lost 20 pounds. And then in three months, I gained back 30. So it worked. <laughs> got fatter. Now, what happens to Daniel is not the result of diet. It's, it's the result of his faithfulness. And so let's see what happens here as we conclude this text today. It says, and as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chiefs of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You know, what validation Nebuchadnezzar must have felt to see these four boys in all their glory. He must have great and taken great pride in believing that his training process had really worked. I mean, look at the results. Little did he realize the true power that was at work. Daniel and his friends are rewarded for their devotion, for their faithfulness, 
and desire to be holy. They are given bodies that are healthier than others, spirits that are more in tune to see what God is doing in the world, minds that are sharper than all the rest. These were the rewards of their faithfulness to God, not the results of Babylonian training programs. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were the joy of Babylon, greater than all the wise men and magicians and enchanters, but yet these friends were in Babylon, but they were not of Babylon. You see, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had great armies. They had brave men, strong tactics, a process of assimilation and indoctrination. They had money and fame and power and political acumen. They had all the things necessary to serve them well in their quest for global domination. But yet it would never be enough. Because you see in the world, power and prestige is an illusion. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Leaders come and leaders go. Daniel was 83 years old when the kingdom of Persia, led by Cyrus, crushed the Babylonians in 539 BC. He served Persia and Cyrus in the same way he once served Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Babylon. What glory Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus might have felt in their conquering and in their invasion. How powerful they might have felt in subjugating and ruling people. Yet little did they know that when Nebuchadnezzar brought back the spoils of war from Jerusalem, that he actually invited the Trojan horse into his camp. Maybe you remember the story from your readings of Homer the Odyssey, of, of Greek soldiers who hid, them, hid themselves in a giant wooden horse outside of the gates of a heavily defended and seemingly unbeatable city in Troy. It was an offering to the goddess of war named Athena, and the Trojans accepted the gift, opened the gates, and brought in the wooden horse. But when nightfall came, the men of Greece came out from their hiding spots. They ransacked the city and defeated the Trojans. Little did Nebuchadnezzar know that he walked into his own city, the most powerful entity in all of the world, a people who love and obey the one true God of the cosmos. Every power in the world wants to enlarge its kingdom, its influence, its name. But let us be reminded that it is the God of the universe, our God, that made it. And it is our God that owned it. He thought he was bringing just a 17-year-old boy. He did not realize the power of the God that they believed in. Daniel knew what all the worldly leaders at that time did not. He knew that God was his only hope. You can read this chapter, and you can talk about Daniel's strength to face opposition. You can read this chapter and hear the tactics that Daniel used to get his way. You could read it to believe that if we did what Daniel did, we'll get what Daniel got. But that is not the premise of this text. What was the core of Daniel's actions? It was his belief that God is his only hope. Daniel penned this letter. And all throughout this chapter, he reminds us of who the real hero is. The sovereign God of the universe. There are two words 
that we must remember today in our reading. And those words are this, God gave. You see, Babylon conquered Jerusalem not because they had mighty armies or not because they were more powerful, but it says in verse two that God gave Jehoiakim into their hands. God gave them over as a consequence for their unfaithfulness. God gave Nebuchadnezzar his victory. And in verse nine, we are reminded of who gave Daniel favor and who softened the hearts of his captors. God gave Daniel favor. It wasn't Daniel's charm or wit or strength. God gave him favor. And who was responsible for Daniel's supreme wisdom and knowledge? Was it Daniel through his efforts? Was it through Daniel's genetics? No, in verse 17, it says that God gave Daniel learning and skill. The lesson of Daniel today is that God is our only hope. God is our only hope in this world. God is our only hope in this life. God is the only hope of our salvation. God is the only hope of our flourishing. God is the only hope in our work. God is the only hope in our marriage. God is the only hope of our children. Daniel was resolved to love and obey God because he was his only hope. Is he yours? If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, might I remind you that you are not your only hope, that you're not your only hope in life, in your endeavors. Your only hope is God. And if you've never come to trust in him and his mercy, know this, that our God proves to be faithful to us. The scripture reminds us that if we are faithful to confess, God is faithful to forgive. You can confess your sins and repent in front of God and be clean by his grace today and walk in his only hope. Young people, can I say this to you today? Resolve yourself in belief that God is your only hope. I remember going to Ball State uh, where I majored in philosophy and religious studies. I know, a fine university. And I, I remember in that season having to resolve myself to be uncompromising in what I believed. Young people today, you must be uncompromising in what you believe. This world is going to teach you that by following its wisdom, you will be individuals and trendsetters. But friends, can I remind you of this? The mental health epidemic in this world is crazy. And you know it because you see it in your friends. The world's wisdom is poison. And it's killing us. The scripture tells us that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The world has a poison that is meant to kill and destroy us. Our God is gracious, and he is good, and he knows what is true of us, and he knows what is good for us. Today, let us be reminded that God is our only hope. And let us be reminded as we leave, read through Daniel that we don't have to fear, that he can be our joy, that we don't have to run and hide, that we can flourish in this world through faithfulness to God, to love and obey him. And that's what we'll study for the rest of our time in Daniel, is how to live in Babylon as one who trusts and loves 
God. And uh, the story of Daniel is incredible. Because I think that we think that if, if we trust and love God, that we'll be outcast, we'll be belittled, and certainly that will be true. But the aroma of Christ on our lives, those who trust in Christ, will be a beautiful smell to a world in decay. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today. And we admit, Lord, that we put hope in lots of things. We put hope in our actions. We put hope in our thoughts. We put hope in our people. We put hope in our abilities. We put hope in our intellect. But so your scripture is clear, Lord. Our only hope is you. What is our hope in life and death? It is you. And so, Lord, will you help us to be resolved to love and obey you, the one who made the world, the one who owns the world, that we would resolve to be uncompromising to a world that's bent toward our destruction. And Lord, will you bring us like Daniel, people in our lives that will walk with us. Will you let this church be a refuge for your people that we will do this together? We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.